the new Money Review podcast, the future of money in 30 minutes. I'm Paul Amory, the editor of New Money Review. My guest for this episode is Simon Gleeson, who is a partner at law firm Clifford Chance in London. Simon is one of the world's leading experts in the law of money and banking. He specialises in the regulation of financial services and banking, capital markets and derivatives. But he recently took a year-long sabbatical from Clifford Chance. Instead, He went as a visiting fellow to All Souls College, Oxford, where he researched and wrote a new book called The Legal Concept of Money. So I started by asking Simon what had prompted him to spend a year as an academic and what he had learned from his research. The thing that really provoked it was the realisation that all of the great work on money, if you like, had been done really in the 1930s and 40s, so in the era of the gold standard. In those days, everybody knew exactly what money was. You know, you had a gold coin on your desk, uh, it satisfied all the criteria, that was easy. That disappeared a long time ago, but the legal theory of money really hadn't been revisited since then. And I think the development of Bitcoin in particular I mean, no matter what you may think of Bitcoin as a product, what it was was an absolutely valid demonstration of the fact that it was possible for something to be money without having anything to do with states or governments. And that really caused me to work out the question that I spent time writing about, which was how do you answer the question is this thing money? You know, what are your criteria? And that's really what the book's trying to address. So from the perspective of the law, how innovative is it to have a, cu- a money or currency that uh, is not uh, backed by government? Well, interestingly, when you go into the history of the thing, we've had money, we've privately issued monies in this country for an extraordinarily long time. And you know, you've got things like the Bristol Pound today, But certainly in the 18th century, it was very common for people like mill owners and factory owners to create what were effectively micro-currencies which circulated within their own town or their own region. And interestingly, it was those that gave rise to the development of bills of exchange and then checks and then what what we use for payment today, which are effectively entirely private instruments just created by commercial banks. So when you look at it from that perspective, you begin to realise that the only, apart from transactions involving notes and coins, the only people who really settle things in central bank money today are commercial banks. All the rest of us settle all of our obligations by the transfer of credit claims on private commercial banks. And when you look at it from that perspective, the idea of settling using a virtual currency created by a private entity suddenly looks a lot less radical. So a credit claim against a, a, a private entity or a private commercial mm. bank is, is my deposit at the bank. So yes. I, I have a claim against the bank for the money that I've deposited with the bank. Yes, absolutely. And, and in your book, you distinguish between that and what you call the imaginary things that we call pounds or dollars yes. or euros. Why are those things imaginary? Well, if you think about, if you have a hundred pounds in the bank, what you have 
is a legal claim on the bank. But there are no hundred pounds anywhere in the world that you actually own. All that you own is a credit claim on the bank. The way that we work, people generally work, is we sort of administer these imaginary counters in our heads. But they are no more than points. All we're really doing is keeping score. And this is one of the most interesting issues. If it would be perfectly theoretically possible to get rid of the entire commercial banking system and replace it with something that was little more than a big bookkeeping exercise whereby people just sort of recorded the points that they wished to exchange with each other. At that point, theoretically, you'd have got rid of money completely. You would simply have a central ledger that recorded claims of one person on another. And, you know, you, you, go, you can go back as far as, as, far as um, Walras, who suggested that that is a perfectly valid model of the economy. Weirdly, you don't need money to have an economy or to have capitalism or to have anything else. It, it really is just a mechanism for keeping score. And that's why you can say, really, these things don't exist any more than runs in cricket or points in tennis exist. They're, they're a scorekeeping mechanism. So the fact that we have banks keeping score is just an accident of history? Yes, or? absolutely. And interestingly, if you go a long way back, there, there was a great debate in Roman scholarship around the turn of the last century as to whether the Romans had banks. But what was going on there was people were starting with a modern idea of a bank and looking at it, looking for things like that in a different context, and of course they weren't finding them. Once people realised that, you then thought, well, let's look for the services that banks provide, and you can find those very easily. Those, those services, you know, the three core um, elements, the provision of payment services, access to the payment system, taking credit risk for reward as an investment, and managing liquidity mismatch, you know, somewhere to put money between the time when you get it and the time where you want to spend it. Today, those three functions are traditionally put together into a single entity that we call a bank, but there's absolutely no reason why they should all be in one place at one time. And you have today payment operators who simply provide the payment service. You find credit investors who purely provide the credit risk issue. And there are a variety of vehicles who, whose sole raison d'etre is the, is the taking of liquidity risk and the reallocation of purely temporal issues. And there's really no reason on earth why those functions should all be concentrated in the same organisation. And to be honest, I have a fairly strong suspicion that the direction of travel is the fragmentation of those services into different types of service provider. And, for and we're already seeing that in, in, on a large scale in, in Asia where payment service Absolutely. providers are very powerful. They, they have complete control of the, the payment process and they, they've kind of spawned these other entities like, like money market funds or, or, yeah. or, or, or credit provision. That's absolutely right. And you know, it's always interesting when people over here say, isn't all this about pie in the sky? The answer is no, it's facts on the ground. Yes, it's already happening. Yes. At that scale. So where does that leave banks then? In, in, uh, will, will the banks lose the payment parts of their business and, and end up 
focusing on on credit provision or credit provision and liquidity risk management or the, will the liquidity and the credit parts be separate? What, how do you think this is going to evolve? It's a very difficult question. I mean, the, well, part of the problem is that if the payment, if payment service providers, and by that I mean anything from um, you know we pay through to Libra, but if payment, if pay, payment service providers interpose themselves between the banks and their customers, then I think the danger is that. Um, that um, what they will succeed in doing is creaming the profits off the banking system. Yes. And that creates something which is a bit of a systemic threat because if the current banking system becomes even less profitable but still has to maintain the payments infrastructure, then we have a fairly serious problem. The question, of course, is won't the banks just fight back? Will the banks just sort of go into the business of internet-based payment provision. And of course, logically, the answer is, well, of course they will, why wouldn't they? But the counter-argument to that is that the experience of so many firms trying to operate in an industry that is being heavily disrupted is that they find themselves facing this vicious circle whereby if they develop new technologies, the first thing they do is to cannibalize their own revenues and destroy their own business model. If you're an incumbent in an industry that is being disruptive, finding a path through is really hard. Yes. Managing a a bank, running a big bank, is about to become a hell of a lot harder. And it's hard enough already, given the regulations that have been put in place since the crisis. Yes, yes. So to, are we dismantling the fractional reserve banking model without you know, realising it? Well, some people may, may realise it, but mm-hmm. and some people may want to do that. But are we doing it without being fully aware of what we're doing? It's entirely possible, yes. I mean, if, if you look at what's happening in um, China at the moment, I mean, the Chinese authorities have been worrying slightly about the speed of growth of the payment providers. So they've now said, well, if you're a payment provider, 100% of the money that you take in must be deposited with a commercial bank. But even there, that's not as much fun as it sounds, because from the perspective of the commercial bank, what's happening is that enormous amounts of money that were previously sticky, long-term, low-cost retail deposits have now become, you know, relatively mobile, short-term, high-cost commercial deposits coming in from the payment systems operators. So even if you still got notional fractional reserve banking sitting within the commercial bank, the profitability of that is under immense stress. Mm. And, you know, it, it, it does take you to the question of do we... You know, do we need banks? Well, we need somebody to do the job that they do, but do we? Do we necessarily need banks in their current form? Well, absolutely not. So it sounds as though across the financial system, liquidity risk is becoming a much bigger issue than it has been for mm. a long time. Is that is that a fair absolutely conclusion from what you said? Well, see, this is one of the interesting questions that we've started to discuss is how would you resolve something like Libra? If you imagine a situation with any major um, cryptocurrency where people, for whatever reason, suddenly started to have doubts about its long-term sustainability, 
this takes you to a point that a lot of people in the public sector have been making. The biggest problem with these things is they don't have a central bank behind them. Yeah. There is no nobody can make new libras in the in in, in, in the way that the central bank can make new dollars or pounds in in in, in the state of in a state of emergency. And the question of how you would stabilize that, or you need who would be responsible for stabilizing that, is quite a difficult question to which I don't think anybody has a clear answer at the moment. And of course, you know, one of the things we know about central banks and the central banks are always very keen to point out is their function is to stabilize. <laughs> Things and if and we do and we do have runs. We do get panics. It happens we all do. the time. It's part of human nature that you can't absolutely. Uh, them. How well equipped is the law to cope with these uh, radical new developments? Um, the law always brings up the rear with these things. You know, by the time you get litigation over something, almost by definition, it's already been developed. Uh, the challenge for the law is that there really isn't an existing body of authority just because these things are novel and the questions that the, the biggest questions the courts are going to have to um, answer is to what extent do they recognize what the parties meant to do where what the party's meant to do doesn't fall within the existing structure of um, statutes and precedents. Now, interestingly, there's uh, there's a lot of history there, particularly in the 19th century when the doctrine of negotiable instruments was being developed. You had this big argument in the courts, basically between one lot of judges who took the view that the purpose of mercantile law was to give effect to the transactions merchants were trying to do. And if everybody agreed that this piece of paper does that job, then the courts should reflect that. Uh, they, they sort of came up against an alternative body, which was the whole point of the law is relative certainty. If we fiddle around with the law every time somebody invents a new piece of paper, then we shall never get anywhere. And I think what we're going to have is a revival of precisely that debate to what extent is it the job of judges and the courts to make sure the, jaw, the law remains clear and predictable by not deviating from existing pre precedents versus the idea that the purpose of the law is to give effect to transactions and not to frustrate them. <laughs> so we have, we have all of that battle still to be had and it, it will be immense fun. Well, one um, thing I, I took away from your book, I'm not sure I understood it correctly, but is that... that um, if money is uh, has the status of currency, it has a yes. has a kind of privileged legal status. You can't yes. you can't. Uh, it's not like other forms of goods yep. where you can go after them. If someone's stolen your stolen yep. goods, you can go and get them back from wherever. But if it's money, you can't do that because if it's yep. then passed on, yes. um, that's a kind of a long-standing principle of law. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. money is fundamentally different from any other sort of property. Just because of that. <laughs> so, where, do, where with new forms of virtual currency, whether Bitcoin or Facebook's mm. Libra, where do these new forms of currency fit into that? There is endless litigation to be had over that one. There really is, because the honest answer is that nobody knows. Yeah. You, know, you, you can't 
you really can't have a sort of private currency. If you and I make a contract between ourselves to exchange sheep for goats and we provide in the contract that for this purpose goats will be treated as money, no, they won't. You know, yeah. The question of what is money is a, is a public law principle. It's not a private law contract. But again, going back to the 19th century bills cases, the way that those disputes tended to be resolved in practice was by taking evidence as to how people, how merchants, how people actually thought about this in everyday life. And you'd rather hope that if that issue came up in front of a court, what the court would do would be look around, take evidence, you know, investigate and say, well, what, how do people think about this? Yeah. If, if people generally are just in the unconscious habit of assuming that bitcoins work the same way as money, then you'd hope that the courts would simply follow that. But as I say, the key point is that the issue in front of the court there is not what did the parties intend, it's what would you know, a hypothetical market user in their position have assumed. So the law will follow social practice in, in that sense. The courts will the courts will eventually follow social practice. Yes, I mean there's all there's all sorts of debate about whether it might not be helpful to have legislation or public statements or something yeah. on this subject. And to some extent, it might be, but the real problem is that in practice, the courts need to follow commercial practice. <laughs> You know, it, 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 the, there have been various attempts in the course of the legal history of this country where courts have endeavoured to get out in front of people and explain to them how they ought to arrange their actions in the future. These have been universally unsuccessful. Mm. It's a very interesting one in Bitcoin, isn't it? Because Bitcoin offers you perfect traceability. You can yes. follow every particular Bitcoin back throughout its history to the point mm. at which it was created and if it passed through the hands of a drug dealer or the government yes. of North Korea you yep. in theory you might be able to establish that and then mm. that might trade at a discount but I, every time I ask somebody about mm. whether how the fungibility aspect of Bitcoin mm. works I, I've, I always struggle to get a mm. I feel like I don't get a yep. clear answer it seems like this is still being worked out and there are lots of services out there that will, that will mm. effectively launder your bitcoins and, yep. uh, and, and, yeah. and so on. Oh, this, yes Bitcoin mixes I know but I mean a point that you know, the, the point that gets made in uh, these some of the textbooks, and it's a very good one, technically every banknote in existence has a unique reference number on it. In theory, you could follow a single banknote all the way through all of its transactions. And I think the point is that the reason that in when we say in law you can't follow a banknote, what we mean is that even if you could follow a banknote, you still can't follow a banknote because the law says that it will not recognise yeah. that identity. And that principle could actually be deployed perfectly well as far as something like Bitcoin is concerned. So even though in theory you can trace the thing, if we take the view that as a matter of law it constitutes money, then part of the law that applies to that thing is that even if you can trace it in practice, the law will not allow you to trace it. Right. As and that was, that was introduced just to, to allow money to, to oil the wheels of commerce? Yes, absolutely. Because I mean, the, the argument is if you had to look into the provenance of the banknotes you received in payment yeah. before accepting them, that the, the, the aggregate damage that would do would mass massively You'd be back to barter systems straight exactly. away. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 
Um, I, you, you mentioned the kind of structure of the uh, financial system, mm. and I, I was at an event a few weeks ago where you called the idea of central bank-issued digital currencies a terrifyingly bad idea. Yes. Why did you say that? Well, the interesting thing about central bank uh, currencies is that they have they actually have significant practical advantages. They would be a handy thing to have around just as far as the efficiency of payments is concerned. But there's really enormous but attached to this. If you had a central bank digital currency um, circulating in competition with private digital currencies, it's very hard to see why anybody in their five senses would accept a you know, Barclay coin if they could have a Bank of England coin on the same terms. So if you were to have a central bank issued currency, and I do mean something that's generally available, a central bank issued currency which is only available for private settlement within the bank, within the bank clearing system is kind of an irrelevance. But if you had it, so, but, so, but so your generally available central bank digital currency would take you to a world where effectively the vast majority of the deposits in the system were placed with the central bank, which in turn would mean that the central bank would become the primary allocator of credit within the entire economy. You know, we, we tried that in Central Europe for most of the last the, the century. The USSR system, yes. Yes, it really, you know, the Gosbank system whereby government directs credit within the economy yeah. is an extremely bad one. And of course, there are central bankers who will say, well, it doesn't have to work like that because when we get the money in, we could give it back to the commercial banks to lend. But of course, you know, you know that wouldn't work because no central bank can fire out money willy-nilly, so it would have to have terms with the commercial banks which agreed what the commercial banks would do with the money they gave it which would take you inexorably back towards centralised government control of the allocation of credit within the economy. Yes. It, it's one of these interesting things that has micro-benefits, but a huge macro-disadvantage attached yes. to those micro-benefits. Uh, so, I, I suppose, uh, I think central banks, no one has yet proposed, uh, none have yet proposed introducing something that's available to the general public along those lines. There's a, there's some I think movement a, in that direction. Yeah. I think Estonia's Thought about it out loud in public. Okay, <laughs> well, that's about as far as it goes. Yes, and but the, but central banks are clearly making a move towards allowing non-banks uh, yes. access to the, to, to reserves at the central bank. Because yes. Mark Carney talked about it yeah. a couple of weeks ago. The BIS seems to have changed its tone a bit in the last mm. uh, public statement it made. So they're recognising that they may need to yes. have non-banks as part of the central clearing system. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think you know, the, the, the two important parts to the Carney thing, one of them is he's saying that he's going to allow payment service providers to access RTGS, and the other is he's saying he's prepared to allow them to have direct accounts with the central bank. RTGS and is the, the real-time settlement the, system. It's the real-time gross settlement system, which is really the core of the, of the sterling payments system. Yeah. But a payment operator with that access can effectively bypass the whole of the commercial banking system. Yes, yes. So what do you and so what do you make of that uh, that, that move? Is that is that a, a, a central banks being? Is this a kind of recognition that, that of, of the new technology they're, mm. they're being forced into doing this? Or it, it, it's it's interesting. I mean, on the one hand, one of the things that policymakers have been complaining about in the UK for years 
is the argument that the UK banking system is a protected oligopoly which involve where, where there's insufficient competition, insufficient change and all the rest of it and there are chunks of the regulators including the PRA which lives within the Bank of England who have been targeted, who, 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 who have been effectively given the target of creating more banks, creating more competition within the system. I think viewed from that perspective the idea of these payment operators becoming a direct competitor to uh, the existing UK banks is perceived in some quarters within the Bank of England as a really good thing. <laughs> you know, conversely, there were certainly banks elsewhere, and central banks elsewhere in the world, who regard their primary function as defending the banking system as it exists today because their view is that fragmentation within the banking system will reduce their control both of that system and of the economy and that therefore this is a threat that should be fought off because if you don't fight that threat off then you know things start slipping through your fingers. I, mean, I, I think the Bank of England is at the more um, entrepreneurial end of that spectrum. I think they quite like to see what happens and see whether the outcome is um, is more access to services cheaper and quicker. Um, but you know, I mean, Mark perfectly correctly said in his speech, he is approaching this with an open mind, but not an open door. Yeah. And uh, many of these projects uh, or networks are mm. global in scale. Bitcoin is, yes. Facebook's new Libra coin is mm. supposed to be uh, operating on a global basis. Mm -hmm. uh, how well do those projects sit with regulation or legal systems that are, I suppose, mm. are organised on a national or regional basis? Well, this is, this, is, this, is, this is one of the world's more interesting issues. The trouble with existing payment systems when you try and use them across borders is you start running into all sorts of legal problems arising out of things like settlement finality. It's terribly easy to create a robust cross-border payment system if you're dealing with you know, the European Union or the United States or something like that. It's massively harder. That's because the legal framework is, exists yes. within the EU or the US to, 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 to say what yeah. at what point settlement becomes final. Yes, and there are effectively mutual recognition arrangements in place. So if yeah. you're in the UK, you can trust US counterparties and so on and so forth. That starts to fall apart very quickly when you get out into the wider world. And it certainly is the case that for a lot of, for an awful lot of the world, making payments across borders is very slow and very expensive. Yeah. And it, it, it seems reasonably clear if you look at life from a Facebook perspective, if you've, if you've looked for the ropiest and least efficient bit of the system where you could automate most quickly, actually cross-border payments in emerging markets would be absolutely your sweet spot. Yes, yes. Simon, um, um, we could continue for a very long time. Lots of many, lots of interesting uh, topics to um, to discuss. Thank you very much for your time. If I could ask you just for a, for a, a final, maybe not a prediction, but just uh, some guidance on you know which, if we look uh, maybe over the next mm -hmm. decade or so, which 
areas surrounding money and the law should we be most focused on? What, where, where are the biggest challenges? What, what are the key things to keep in mind? Okay, well, my, my personal thought is that it's the interactions between the new and the old which is where the real pain will arise. Um, and the point here is that if payment starts to become seriously disrupted, the banks will not fold their tents and steal away, they will stand up and fight back. I mean, a point I was like making at these things is that a coin, coins have been around for two and a half thousand years. Banknotes have been around for a couple of hundred years. Apple Pay has been around for what, three or four years. If I walk into the news agents in the morning, I can use any one of those to buy my newspaper. The point is, payment developments don't displace each other, they tend to coexist. And certainly as far as lawyers are concerned, the questions are going to be questions like, if I owe you sterling and you owe me Libra or Bitcoin or whatever, you know, can I set off? How do I have to, how, how do I have to treat these claims? What's the value of a claim for Libra? Can I have judgment in Libra, or do I have to have judgment for a value of sterling? And if so, what? It's it, 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 it's the, it's the points where it's points where the old and the new rub against each other, where I think we're going to see the real challenges for legal development going forward. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. You can support New Money Review by visiting patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, forward slash New Money Review, and becoming a patron of the site. Your support will help us cover this fast-growing area of finance independently and in depth. You can also support us in cryptocurrency. Our wallet addresses for Bitcoin, Ether, and Litecoin are published on the home page of our website in the right margin.